All right, let's start this morning off with a question. How many here are parents? And it doesn't matter if your kids are out of the house, that you're still a parent, right? Now, what was your greatest concern as a parent? Well, that's good. I'm glad you had some concerns. Well, I can't speak for you, but I'm going to tell you what my greatest concern was. My greatest concern is that my kids would grow up. There is nothing worse than having an adult child in the house. Now, I was not concerned that my girls would grow up physically. Nature was going to take care of that. My concern was that my girls were going to grow up, were they going to grow up intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually? You see, I wanted them to become mature, and the reason why I wanted them to become mature is I wanted them to have the ability to make good decisions. There's nothing more important that you can help your child with than helping them to make and learn how do you make good decisions in your life. Because you see, if you make good decisions, you're going to glorify God and you're going to live victoriously. You're going to have a victorious life. Now, just as we want our own children to grow up, guess what? God wants his children. And if you consider yourself a child of God, he wants you to grow up and he wants me to grow up. And in the text this morning, John is going to give us the stages of spiritual growth. So here we go. First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts, and you have won your battle with the evil one. Now, the Apostle John tells us here in these verses that there are three stages to Christian maturation. Here they are, spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual parenthood. And I'd like to unpack each of these stages this morning. In verse 12, John writes this, I am writing to you little children. Little children here in the Greek would be the equivalent of our toddlers. So I am writing to you spiritual toddlers. How many here are toddlers this morning? You probably don't like that term. Now, if you've ever been a parent, and you've parented a toddler, toddlers, what? Stumble. They fall down. They're messy. They make mistakes. They trip and they fall a lot. That is the toddler stage. And if you catch it, they mess up a lot, don't they? And so do spiritual toddlers. But here's the important thing. See, John wants us to understand something. Even though a toddler trips and falls down, as a parent, did you just say, all right, that's enough. You've been, you've been falling down. You've been making a lot of mistakes. You're out of the house. You just kick him out of the house. And see, the Apostle John is actually writing uh, from, as a pastor here. He's really trying to encourage his congregation. And so he's saying, if you're a spiritual toddler, you need to remember two things. Two things when you mess up. The first of all, he says this. John writes that, you know, your sins are forgiven, because of his name, because of Jesus' name. I want to say that again. He says, you need to understand this. Your sins have been forgiven because of his, Jesus' name. That's perfect tense. Now, I didn't care for English. I don't know about you in high school. Hated it. Didn't pay attention. Actually, I just found out when I took Greek and Hebrew, 
The tenses, especially in the Greek, make a difference. Perfect tense means something happened in the past, and it has continuing ramifications on into the future. So why is this important? Because what it's saying is, is that Frank Ray was saved at a point in time, so my sins had been forgiven. And now if I sin, my sins are presently forgiven. And in the future, my sins will be forgiven. That's what the perfect tense says. It says that the blood of Jesus, Frank, has you covered. Now, if you're, no, if you're a believer, this is incredible news because it's saying that Jesus' blood is totally sufficient for your mess-ups. And it's important to know, especially if you are a toddler Christian, because you see, toddler Christians, they make mistakes. They sin. You know, that's the whole idea of spiritual growth here. As a toddler, you will mess up. It's just kind of what happens to you. And the whole idea of discipleship, now you understand why we talk about discipleship. The idea of discipleship is to help you how to grow up, how to learn to die to self, to mortification of the flesh, so that the Holy Spirit can make you stronger and stronger. But when you mess up, especially if you're a young Christian, what does Satan do? See, the moment, I remember the moment I messed up, all of a sudden I would, my, my mind would just be bombarded. Look what you did! Are you kidding me? And you call yourself a Christian? How could God possibly love you or want you anymore? And you hear these kinds of, of voices in your head, right? And see, because the toddler Christian is spiritually sensitive, they are very easily to experience condemnation in their life. You know, when I played football in, in both high school and college, I believe it was my college coach, we were taking a breather at one point, and, he, and I, I played defensive line, and so he was the defensive line coach, and he said, men, I just want you to understand something. You will get knocked down. This is a contact sport. You will get knocked down. There's no shame in getting knocked down. Here's the question, men. The question is, once you're down, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay down or are you going to get back up? And what John is saying this morning, especially to the toddler Christian, when you get knocked down, he wants to give you something to help you get back up. It's so important that we understand that God has not rejected us. We've been forgiven and God has not rejected us. In fact, listen to what John says in verse 14. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. See, that's the question. Do you know Papa? You know, one of the greatest pictures of Papa in the entire Bible is found in the New Testament, and it's found in Luke chapter 15. We know it as the parable, right, of the prodigal son. And I've said time and time again, that's a lousy title because it's really not so much about the prodigal son as it is about the perfect father. And it starts out like this, chapter 15, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So this father, the perfect father, who's a picture of the heavenly father, has two sons. The younger son is a jerk. He's probably 17 or 18 years old. He's cocky. He's rebellious. He thinks he knows what he's doing. And he goes up to his father. Can you imagine if you're a father? He goes up to his father and says, you know, dad, I don't really care about our relationship, but I do like what you have. 
I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were dead so I can have what you have. Now, I'm half Italian. And that's not going to work well for me. I'm going to give the boy the left foot of fellowship. (laughs) Boom! That was my right foot. You're not my son anymore. But no, see, that's the human thing to do, but... The perfect father doesn't do this. If you read the story, you know what the perfect father does? He sells the house. He sells the camels. He, he turns in the 401k, sells all the jewelry and everything, and he gives this rebellious kid his part of the inheritance. You say, why? I'll tell you why, because it's discipline. You see, the heavenly father doesn't disown you, doesn't disown me, but you know what he does do? He disciplines. In fact, it says this in Hebrews. Can you put up the scriptures for them? Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Then he says this further in Hebrews chapter 12. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. You see, the perfect father in the prodigal son, that story, he disciplines his son. You say, well, I don't see the discipline. He did discipline his son. You know what he did? He gave him enough rope to hang himself. He gave him the money, let him go. That's discipline because what he's going to do is let consequences be the teacher. It's one of the things we're very poor at overall is allowing consequences to be a great teacher. And so this kid, he lets him go. He gives him enough rope to hang himself. Why? What's his hope? I'll tell you what his hope is. Look at, with me at Luke chapter uh, 15 and verse 17. It says this. I love this. When he, the son, finally came to his senses. See, the discipline worked. When he, the son, finally came to his senses. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Do you know that as a parent, almost every day I was praying, Oh, Lord, let my girls come to their senses. You ever, you ever prayed that? I mean, may, may, maybe you've got a family member. May, maybe there's someone you know. They're just really making bad decisions. The greatest thing you can do is, Lord, let them come to their senses. All of a sudden, it's such a wonderful moment when the light bulb goes on. And they suddenly see that God is the right way, not the world. And they begin to follow him and really make good decisions in their life. You know, if you're a believer, if you're a true born-again believer, I'm going to give you one of the greatest promises in the Bible. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed it, having trusted what Jesus did on the cross, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that when someone truly becomes born again, really receives what Jesus did on the cross, places their faith and trust in him, they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Tim, put up the picture. There you see different seals of of really the ancient world. And the seal, now listen to this, a seal signified 
three things, three things. And I'm going to give you these three things. Listen to this. Number one, a seal signified that something was genuine or true. For example, if you pull out your wallet, pull out a dollar bill, what will you see there? You will see a seal on it, the United States seal. You know what that tells you? It tells you that that dollar bill is real. It tells you that it's genuine. It's a real thing. It's backed by the United States government. That may not mean much anymore, but it still says that's what it means. And let me tell you something. If you are a true believer, then you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Father gives you the Holy Spirit. And that's one way you know if someone's the real deal, because they have the Spirit of God within them. And when the Spirit of God is within a person, what, what, what do you begin to see? You begin to see the fruit. You begin to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So that's one of the great ways that you know that you are a believer, is that God gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, a seal signifies something as one's own property. For example, a couple gets married. You know, I've done tons and tons of marriages. And, you know, they'll be up on an altar like this and they're lovingly looking at one another. You know, they're holding hands and, and they're looking into one another's eyes and they say vows to one another. And they might even have a unity candle signifying, you know, that they're one. But you know what's the most important part of that ceremony? The ring ceremony. They exchange rings. You know why they exchange rings? Because the rings show now that they each are one another's property. They each, in a sense, own one another. So, for example, when I married Susan, I gave her a ring. And when I gave her that ring, what I was saying is, is now to the world, she's owned. She's somebody else's. And what that's really signifying is you can talk to Susan. You can even ask Susan for some help. But you better not mess with her because she's mine. She's my property. Can you imagine? This is what Papa's doing. When he places the Holy Spirit in a believer, he's saying, you are mine. Look at Frank. Frank is my child. That's my boy. No, he proudly wears it. I mean, it's hard to believe. He gives me the Holy Spirit, and he's telling the world, I own Frank. Frank's my child, and that's my boy. He's proud of that reality. The seal also, though, did a third thing in the ancient world. A seal in the ancient world made something secure. So go back to 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was crucified after he gave up his spirit. There was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea was one of the people that took Jesus' body down from the cross. And then he laid him in his tomb. Now, the Romans, in particular Pilate, if you remember, wanted to make the tomb secure or protected. So what did Pilate do? He put a seal on it, and then he put Roman soldiers around it. What he was saying is, this is Roman property. I'm protecting this. Do not mess with it. Do not mess with that, or you will die. And that's something. If you're truly a believer, you have the Spirit of God in you. And God is saying, you're my property to the world, and don't mess with them. No, they're under my protection. Do you know what encouragement that is? I don't know what you're going through right now. 
No, but I want you to think about it. I don't know what you're going through right now. But do you realize that if you're truly God's, nothing can happen in your life that hasn't passed through the Father? No, do you understand that? Nothing. I don't care what's going on right Nothing can happen to your life or my life that the Father hasn't allowed. And if he allows it, is he going to do it for evil? No, see, don't think about this. It, I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying it's fun. But he's allowing it in your life. He allows it in my life for his good or our good and his glory. Do you understand that? I mean, this is really good news for the toddler Christian. It's important to know that you're forgiven and that Papa will not disown you. All right, second stage of spiritual growth is this. Tim, can you put up 1 John chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14? I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. You know, as I was looking at that, what we see here is that the spiritual adolescent is growing stronger. You know, spiritual toddlers, what are they doing? They're tripping up, they're messing, they're making mistakes. But listen to this. The spiritual adolescent is growing stronger. In fact, John says so much so that they are winning their battle with Satan. Can you say that? No, no. Can you say that? Can I say that? In fact, the apostle Peter writes this in his first letter. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 this, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this in chapter 4 and verse 7, these penetrating words. So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have to understand something. The Bible is clear there really is a Satan, and we are living in a war zone. There really is a Satan, and we are living in a war zone. Every time we are presented with the opportunity to Entertain a lustful thought, you have just entered the spiritual battlefield. Every time you have a chance or I have a chance to do something vindictive, we have just entered the spiritual battlefield. Every time we have a chance to say something hurtful or harmful to someone, we have just entered the spiritual battlefield. Every time I toy with the thought, you know, I'm really better than most people. I have just entered, you have just entered the spiritual battlefield. Every time you encounter a person in need, you have entered the spiritual battlefield. Life, whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, is a spiritual battlefield. And some of you are thinking, well, wow, pastor, I didn't sign up for that. Well, do you remember when you were just born and and the doctor spanked your backside? You were just drafted into it. You were just drafted into it. And as that great theologian Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And Peter and John are clear on this point. If you do not stand up to Satan, if you do not know how to resist him, he's going to roll over you like a bowling ball roll over pins. Boom. And it's going to be ugly. To win the spiritual battle against Satan, listen to what they say. James says, you must humble yourself before God. 
Peter says you must humble yourself before God. When I humble myself, when you humble yourself, then you can stand up to Satan. Let me ask you a question. How do you humble yourself before God? I I mean, if someone were to ask me, what is the essence of the spiritual life? You know what I would say? Humility. Absolutely. Humility. What does it really mean to be humble? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. Apostle John tells us in chapter 2 and verse 14, put it up. There it is. I'm writing to you who are young in faith. Now watch this, because you are strong. Why are they strong? God's word lives in your heart, and you have won your battle against the evil one. There is a direct correlation. Now listen, there's a direct correlation to being strong, to standing up to Satan, and having the word of God living in your soul. Did you hear me? There is a direct correlation become becoming spiritually strong, able to stand up to Satan, and the word of God living in your soul and my soul. In fact, the psalmist states this in Psalm 119 and verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. You know, a landmark study was conducted about five or six years ago of the evangelical church. And here, here's what it was essentially about. What one thing is absolutely essential, absolutely essential if a person is to grow in their faith? Do you know what they came up with? Confirming. Ding, 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 ding. It only confirmed what John just wrote 2,000 years ago. I got the word of God. It's here. These words are here. And then you become strong. That's how you become strong. And you can stand up to Satan. You know, let me see if I can just kind of give you uh, a little bit of a feel for this. <laughs> Let's say you suddenly bought an ice cream parlor or, you know, shop. But the law was passed that you could only sell one flavor of ice cream. What flavor would you choose? Chocolate. I, I heard Chocolate. Vanilla, vanilla, number one answer by far. Number one flavor of ice cream is vanilla. Do you know that it is twice as popular as the second flavor, which is chocolate? So in other words, if you were to open an ice cream shop and you could only sell one flavor of ice cream, it would be, if you're smart, it would be very good. You guys are sharp. I like that. Now, 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 see, I'm, I'm setting you up, though. So here you are, your pastor, yo-yo, all right? And, and you want your people to grow spiritually. Now, think about this. You really want them to grow. So what should you major on? Now it's getting really soft. I'm not looking for tongues here this morning, all right? You know, a well-known pastor was recently asked this question. They asked, you know, you should ask a pastor. They said, what is your job? What is your job? What do you think he said? To feed Jesus' sheep. To feed Jesus' sheep. It's not to have better music. It's not to get you jacked up. 
It's not to get you to focus on social justice programs. I'm not saying any things are wrong. It's not to have recovery groups. It's not to have better children or youth programs. Again, I'm not saying any things are wrong. But if you really want to help people grow and become victorious, breaking strongholds, breaking chains in their life, then the pastor who is smart is going to help his people get the word of God into them. So I, I, I just want you to understand that is exactly what we're interested in doing. Now, let me give you a statistic that just is so alarming. The statistic is this. This is an evangelical church. Do you know that according to the statistics, according to the statistics, only one out of five in this room, one out of five is picking this book up four or more times a week and reading, studying, and meditating on it for a half hour a day or more. Only one out of five. Is there, is there any wonder, no, that, that we're being pummeled and that our, our, our people are just being destroyed by Satan, and they're in all kinds of bondage and all kinds of sin. You know, one of my favorite scriptures is found in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. It's great. It says this, you, you, have to, you, you know, Peter and John, remember, these guys are fishermen now, and they're standing before the learned council, okay? This is kind of the backdrop here in, in, uh, of the Sanhedrin, okay? And, and they're being tried. Now watch this. The member of the council, the Sanhedrin, were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. But they also recognized them as men They recognized him as men who had with Jesus. I, do, do, do you see the beauty of that? They're just ordinary. Pastor, I'm just ordinary. Ordinary IQ, ordinary looks, ordinary grades. I'm ordinary. I can't do much. These were ordinary men. But what made him stand out? They had been with Jesus. Can you be with Jesus? Can you? Here's the challenge. One of because we've got to move. What would happen if you spent an hour a day with Jesus? No, no, I'm asking you, what would happen if you spent an hour a day with Jesus? Do you think it would change how you acted toward your spouse? no. If you spend an hour a day with Jesus, what would happen if you spend an hour a day with Jesus? Would it, would it maybe change how you treat your kids and parent your kids? What if you really spend an hour a day with Jesus? May you be a different employee at your job? Might I? What happens if I really spend an hour a day with Jesus? Would it begin to change my thinking from negative to positive? Would, I, would, would people say, you know, have you ever watched people? They're coming down the hallway and they're just a real pain. They're what you, you know, they, they just suck the life out of you. And, and you see them coming, what do you do? You dodge in, you know, a, a door somewhere. What do you think people do when they see you? Ooh. What would happen, though, if you spent an hour a day with Jesus? I guarantee you, 
it would change your thinking pattern, my thinking pattern. The disciples, ordinary people, did extraordinary things because they had been with Jesus. All right, we're, we're, we're running out of time. I, I got to finish this thing. Third stage of spiritual growth. Third stage of spiritual growth. First John chapter 2 and verse 13 says this, I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you, because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. Now, know here, we don't have a lot of time, but know does not mean that you just know some, some facts about Jesus. You might even know some of his commandments. It's speaking of something deep. Let me ask you this. What do you think happens when someone really knows Jesus? I, I think I did hear it. You become like him. You change. Do, have you ever noticed that they, 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 they say that husbands and wives, if they get to know each other, begin to look like one another? It's kind of sad. You start wearing the same clothes. Well, I mean, not exactly. But no, no. I mean, look, look at the couple. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, you, as, as you know, you, you begin to take on their traits seriously. So when someone says, I know Jesus they begin to look like Jesus. I mean, now, we're, you're, you're, I'm going to show you a scripture. Put it up here because people don't like this one. This is Paul. Follow my example. Can you imagine saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ? Now, is this guy arrogant or what? No. See, Paul is saying, I know my Jesus so well, I'm beginning to look like him. And I hear, well, that's just ridiculous. I'm not Jesus. How can you expect me to be like him? That's exactly the point. That's spiritual parenthood. We are. That's the goal, to be little Jesuses. Did you know that? We should be able to say with Paul, can someone say, follow my example as I follow Christ? He's saying I'm looking like Jesus. Now, do you know why we're in trouble we don't have mentors. We don't have parents. We don't have spiritual parents. How does a young girl know what it means to be a woman of God, to be a wife, a godly wife? How, how is she going to know? Jesus didn't say, come listen to me. Did he say to, to the disciples? See, we're great. Oh, well, we're just going to listen to Pastor Frank, and we're going to grow up. Ding, 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 ding. No, you're not. Jesus said, come follow me. I'll show you how to do it. See, we're dying because we don't have spiritual parents. The average American church, at best, has 2% of them. Do you know, uh, in other words, our parents that can reproduce? To, to, to the point where you can say, here's my man. Here is Jeff Eckstein. Here's my man. Follow him. Because he looks like Jesus. Wow. See, that's where we're supposed to be getting to. This is scriptural, guys. This is, this is why we're in trouble. This is what this church, I want you to understand, is about. We're not about numbers. We're not about, you know, pumping you up and having great music. And we're about discipling you through toddlerhood, adolescence, to helping you become a parent so that you, you know, you, know, you, you are being a positive incredible thing for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine standing before Jesus and you still are, hi, Jesus. No, no. You don't want to do that. 
Christ, that's the ultimate test. You know, the moment I, I, I heard Joe Gress, I heard, I think it was last night his father died, and I heard he really was a Christian. And I always think, wow, what is that going to be a great moment or not? Is that going to be a great moment for me? Is it going to be a great moment for you? Because is Jesus going to be saying, hey, well done, Frank. Man, you got to the point of parenthood and you were positively impacting people with me in, in, in my kingdom. Man, see, that's what I'm shooting for. What are you shooting for? What are you shooting for? And that's the challenge. Do you just want to be a toddler, an adolescent, or do you want to grow up and make a difference? Lord, I pray that we'll really take seriously this word. So many of us are just walking through life aimlessly, and we're going to die. And we'll have impacted nothing positively for Jesus or the kingdom. And that's eternal. That's the only thing that does matter. And I'm asking, I know you're moving right now, Holy Spirit. And I just begin to ask that we would open our hearts to your conviction and say, I'm done. I want to grow. I'm going to pay the price. This is what I want my life to be about. I want to be truly a little Jesus. I want to be able to say, follow my example because I'm following Christ. I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Hi, I'm Jeff Eckstein, one of the pastors here at Bethlehem Community Church. Welcome to our Sunday podcast, coming to you from the town of Bethlehem in upstate New York in the USA. Bethlehem Community Church is an independent, non-denominational, Bible-based evangelical church that includes people with backgrounds from many denominations. We believe that it is only through the love of the Father the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can come into a personal relationship with God. We are people truly seeking a deeper intimacy with God and with one another. If you'd like to know more about our church, please visit our website at www.bccdelmar.org. There you'll be able to find our statement of faith, as well as more about the ministry of Bethlehem Community Church, You'll also be able to submit prayer requests as we are called to pray with and for you. We also would love to hear your story and how you found our podcast and where you're listening from. So please visit our website and send us an email. Again, it's bccdelmar.org. That's bccdelmar.org. Thank you for joining us as we continue our pursuit of knowing God and making Him known.